Hello and welcome to the Amateur Austenite. My name is Frances Duncan. I'm an author and the founder of the Jane Austen Society of New Zealand. My very special guest with me today is my friend Shan. Good afternoon. And today we're discussing Chapter 6 of Persuasion by Jane Austen. In Chapter 6, Anne settles the upper cross. We sort of have a brief overview of her first three weeks where she gets everybody's complaints about everybody else, mostly about Mary to be fair. And then the Crofts come to Callinch and then the Crofts come to visit at Upper Cross and Anne meets them. And she finds out that Captain Wentworth is coming to visit. The Musgroves find out that Captain Wentworth is coming to visit and they discover that he was the captain of their son Richard who died at sea. And they're quite upset about it. And that's chapter six. It shows that after all the kerfuffle with Kellynch and moving to Bath, that moving to Upper Cross, that the Elliots are not the centre of existence of the world. That basically nobody else is really that interested beyond the hell where we might be in Bath next time. Just an off-handed comment. A totally off-handed comment. It's just not, it's of no no interest at all. Anne has the same thing, the reverse happened to her later. When she goes to Bath, she realises the same thing, that all the people that she was with, they were the centre of her life, and now she has to reorient herself to her family again. Mm. And then the phrase, how unknown or unconsidered were the affairs which at Kellich Hall were treated of such general and pervading interest. And they, they think that everybody wants to know what they're doing because they're so important. Yes. Celebrity. <laughs> Celebrity egos. I could imagine Sir William as a, you know, appearing in, uh, it wouldn't be Woman's Weekly, what's the men's equivalent? The, M? It'd be more like This Is England or uh, the, I think, is it the CG, CG magazine? That's the one that's sort of very men, or Cosmopolitan, I think, or something like that. And he'll be raving about his, his beautiful complexion. And... <laughs> Meryl is not so repulsive and unsisterly as Elizabeth, <laughs> Isn't it nor just... so inaccessible to her to all influence of hers. Now, that is really calling damning with faint praise. Not so repulsive. So still repulsive, but not quite <laughs> as repulsive as her other sister. The thing that, that stuck out to me nor so inaccessible to all influence. Mm. She's childlike like her father, that she can be influenced into good behaviour. Whereas Elizabeth is past any form of influence. They give a good description of Charles Musgrove, Mm. and he seems like such a nice guy, but it says he was not of powers or conversation or grace to make the past as they were connected together at all a dangerous contemplation, i.e. Anne does not regret that she did not marry him. No. No, she doesn't at all. Uh, And they go on to say that both Anne and Lady Russell think that a more equal match might have improved him. And I I have to say, I think that's quite true. I think Mary, unfortunately, I wouldn't say brings out the worst in him, but doesn't really bring out the best in him. This is true. But they are a a reasonably good match because his good spirits never seem much affected by his wife's occasional lowness. Yes. And he bears with her unreasonableness, unreasonableness to Anne's admiration. It made me think of the Palmers and Sense and Sensibility and how Mrs. Palmer was very up and mm. Mr. Palmer was very down. Mm-hmm. And that didn't seem to work. But in this case, Mary Musgrove is down and Charles Musgrove is up, but somehow it works. I love that always perfectly agreed in the want of more money. <laughs> But here, as on most topics, he had the superiority 
He always contended that his father's having many other uses for his money. So while he might want it, he actually understood that his, his father actually had many other calls, that he wasn't the priority. It must be very hard for him because he's basically waiting for his father to die to get the estate. Yeah, I suppose I mean, one could argue that it's hard or one could argue that, well, he has the opportunity to actually learn how to run it and everything without the responsibility at this point. Mm-hmm. Basically, he's quite capable of just enjoying himself and going out and playing sport. Which he does. Yes. One of the least agreeable circumstances of her residence there was her being treated with too much confidence by all parties and being too much in the secret of the complaints of each house. And then it goes on for about three pages listing all the complaints that Anne gets from both sides, from both parties. Talk about meat in the middle, just constantly, because while you're trying to advise as well, because you do obviously have affection for these people, she obviously had affection for her sister to a certain extent, it's going in one ear out of the other. And and really, who would ever want to be in that position of being expected to actually influence somebody? Although one could rather sympathise with the view of persuading Mary not also to be fancying herself ill. (laughs) The 1995 adaptation of Persuasion, I think, does this this scene really, really well. Within one visit, Anne has all these conversations with people and you see them directly talking to her, one and then the other and then the other and then the other. Yeah, I was trying to visualise it because I can't remember the film and I was just looking to see you could... You could imagine sort of like little cameos coming up with her talking to Mary at one screen and then next next to the a little cameo of looking the other direction but talking to Mrs Musgrove and, and, and just going all around and it's essentially all on the same thing but completely different perspectives and all the time she's just sort of shaking her head. And sitting in the middle. Sitting in the middle. And they refer to Mary as Mrs Charles and I hate that. Well, that's actually not that old terminology you know I still find when I'm writing to like when I used to write to my aunt and uncle I used to talk you know send letters would be to Mr and Mrs Geoffrey Garthwaite you know that was the formal sort of way of addressing people you know it has changed in 50 less than 50 years really I mean it's not what you would call her to her face no I wouldn't because she was my auntie I'm not like it now, but when I first came here, I really, really disliked people calling me by my first name if I didn't know them. It's very English of you. Yeah, it was too, too familiar, particularly, particularly salespeople. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was always something that um, now, of course, I call people by all sorts of names, and I'm just as bad as everybody else. And this day and age, of course, is that she was his possession, mm. yeah, and by law, she was still a chattel. So. She'd lost her name. I liked it in the adaptations. They just call everyone by their first name. It makes it feel more friendly. It also, I think, for us, is easier to keep track of the characters. There are a lot of Charles in this book. Yes, Charles Junior, Charles Senior, and then Charles Third. Yes, you add a Mrs. Charles, and that's four. Oh, and Charles Hater. Oh, yes, five, five. <laughs> yes, one could argue the lack of imagination, but men's names didn't vary that much really and they did tend to go down in family didn't they yes and we have that at women's names as well oh at the start we were talking about all the Anne's and elizabeth's mm. no the mary's and elizabeth's mary's. named after and, and anne as well of course ma- named after english queens since there was neither superior affection confidence nor employment in the cottage 
this is Anne saying, yes, it's lovely to have the great house to go to. But is she saying that she likes the Musgroves more? There's no superior affection, confidence. Employment, yes, I understand, because there's yes. not much to do. Yes. I mean, I, I suppose you can't really give any confidences to Mary. I don't think she could be trusted with any secrets. She was able to be part of rather than being expected to be above. Whenever she went or met or was involved with Sir William and he went anywhere, he was always had to be the centre of attention, always had to be the mark by which everybody else was judged. So here I think she would be quite much more comfortable because there's not really the points, apart from Mary and that sort of, which she could handle quite well, but... Getting those visits from the rest of the family just meant the rest of Charles's family just meant life was livelier. There was no feel for having to put themselves forward all the time. There's a lovely, homely feeling. They meet every morning and hardly ever spent an evening asunder. She says she enjoys the sight of Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove's respectable forms in the usual places. I think she has a lot of time for the senior Musgroves, a lot of respect for them, who've always made her very welcome. Even though they naturally favour their own daughters, they recognise the value of Anne. And it talks about this, that they favour their own daughters when it comes to music. No voice or knowledge of the harp. Such a fashionable instrument, the harp. All the young daughters are very fashionable. Mm, They are. So she's there for three weeks and then Michaelmas comes and that shows you that Sir Walter's going to Bath was preemptive. Yes. He didn't need to go straight away. No. And then the cross take possession. And Anne actually wants to meet them. And so she's glad she's home when they return the visit because she can't go with Mary because there's no room because I assume they went in Charles's carriage, which mm. was small. And she couldn't justify meeting them either because she was not on her own. It would have been the man going with his wife. So mm. It's a bit of a trial for her. Anne hoped she had outlived the age of blushing, but the age of emotion she certainly had not. No, I I love the description of Mrs. Croft. Bright, dark eyes, good teeth. (laughs) Like a horse. Yes. It was always such an important part in those days, of course. Although she had a reddened and weather-beaten complexion. Well, you could imagine Sir Walter is not being pressed with that. But she's got this confidence about her. Mm. Her manners were open, easy and decided, like one who had no distrust of herself and no doubts of what to do, without any approach to coarseness, however, or any want of good humour. She sounds great. There was a confidence that she didn't know Anne, so she could be comfortable until that moment of being electrified by Mrs. Croft suddenly saying, it was you and not your sister that my brother had the pleasure of being acquainted with. I love the term, like electrified. It must have been a fairly new terminology then. Yeah. Because the idea of, I mean, they talked obviously... I know in the Royal Society they were having thing, demos about electricity and things, but I wonder when I wonder when it actually started to be commonly used as a phrase. It clears it up really quickly, though. Like oh, you, yes. You almost kind of <gasps> wish that it had hung around a bit longer, the thinking that Captain Wentworth was married, but almost immediately she finds out that they're talking about Mr Wentworth, not Captain Wentworth. I was just going to say, because as soon as she would have said that, you could imagine the drop world dropping out of her. She is kept on tether hooks a little because she has to wait to hear from the great house that Captain Wentworth is coming to visit. And then she has quite a trial as they talk about him 
all evening when they discover that Captain Wentworth was the captain of the Musgrove son, yes. Richard. She has to get used to his name being said all the time. Poor Richard, thinking so much of poor Richard. Being nothing better than a thick-headed, unfeeling, unprofitable <laughs> Dix Musgrove, who had never done anything to entitle himself to more than the abbreviation of his name, living or dead. And what? I wonder if that's the Georgian humour calling him Dick. He's just 20. He'd already been at sea because they went to... I went to sea very young. About, I think as a midshipman they'd go at the age of 12 or 14 or something. Mm. So it's almost like he never really had a chance to grow out of it, did he? But I love the bit where it says that they uh, had in the course of those removals to which all midshipmen are liable and especially such midshipmen as every captain wishes to get rid of. <laughs> and you could imagine him being posted every six months to another ship and oh God, it's our turn now, you know. <laughs> What I find difficult about this is that the Musgroves are such a loving family, but they don't care about Dick. I mean, they're grieving for him now, but they didn't seem to care about it much when he died. Well, beyond the sort of the relief of having gotten rid of their troublesome, but I think, of course, they're a lot more fatalistic in those days. Children died. Children died at sea. We don't know how many other kids they may have lost. They, well, we know they're a big family. They're a big family. Um, they did what they could for their son, and then it's up to him to, you know, because getting him a midshipmanship during the war would have been a great opportunity. After all, Captain Wentworth managed to rise through the ranks. Uh, I think it's all part of this humour. It pervades sometimes, the black humour that there is in the story. Would we make it a tragic thing now if we were rewriting it? You know, would it be something that would be held over... I don't know. I think she's very much laughing at the Musgroves. Oh, I think so. Mrs Musgrove was thrown into greater grief for Dick than she had known on first hearing of his death. Yes. I think sometimes it's that hindsight, isn't it? You, is that partly because you're more shocked when you hear it the first time, or is it just that there's people to see? <laughs> I suppose the other thing here is that bringing to mind that they'll see the captain who'd actually been... Who knew him as well. I loved the bit where he was the only captain and managed to persuade him to write letters that were more than just begging for money. So he was a good captain. Yes. We're learning that about him. There's a lot of background all the way through this book, I think, constantly. that You know, there isn't the same level of dialogue. More like quotes out of conversations rather than anything else. But there's a lot of information around the characters, the building up the characters and understanding them. And the more we hear about the characters, the more and more you realise just how alone Anne truly is. The only, you know, the only fellow person that she has this ability to relate to is Lady Russell. But of course, she came with her own faults. Certainly nobody of her own age to relate to. A lonely existence, really, isn't it? Do you think the way that it's written at the moment with less dialogue and more quoted speeches, do you think that's partly because it wasn't really finished? Well, that's a thought. I think part of it, of course, is that Anne herself doesn't have much opportunity to talk. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is talking around her. So she's, unlike in Pride and Prejudice, where Elizabeth's very, I wouldn't say voluble, but she's that much more outspoken and part of the conversations and, and Lydia is and that whole personality. Anne is that self-effacing type of person and so partly because 
there's no conversations or there's few conversations which she can participate in. She's making more sympathetic noises most of the time. What we're hearing essentially is always them, the other person, the, the Marys and the Charles, all asking her to do something all the time. And, and really, what can she say beyond the, I'm hearing what you're saying, but I can't do anything <laughs> about it. I think in some ways it just sort of highlights the difference in the characters as well. And that is our summary of Chapter 6 of Persuasion by Jane Austen. My name is Frances Duncan. You can find me at francisduncanwrites.com and on Twitter at Francis underscore Duncan. Thank you for listening and we wish you happy reading. Just popping back in to let you guys know that we have merch now. I haven't actually got merch with my face on it. That seems a little weird to me. But if you really want it, let me know and I'll do that. Here's merch of... The Jane Austen Society of Aotearoa, New Zealand's logo, uh, some Jane Austen merch, and some Pride and Prejudice, heavily Pride-focused merch, too. It's on Redbubble, and the link is in the notes. Happy buying!